welcome to the First Salt Company Summit. Yeah, we're so happy you guys are here today and tomorrow. Um, my name is Kaylee Hunting, and um, yeah, I just want to welcome you guys and want to say thank you for taking time this weekend to be here. Um, four years ago, crazy, it's been four years ago. So those of you who are seniors in the house, you've been around for the four years of Salt Company at University of Minnesota. Um, we started Salt Company in the basement of Blarney's Pub in Dinkytown. Um, and it was, really, it was really fun thinking back to that first Salt Company launch because I remember a lot of the, the feelings going into that night. You know, there's the excitement of like, okay, we're starting this. And then there's the nerves of like, is anybody going to show up? <laughs> and oh, it's raining outside. Nobody's going to show up. And then, of course, God was faithful and we celebrated our first salt company with the grassroots of um, a ton of faith and hope and expectation for God to do really awesome things. And I feel like this room is an answer to some of those prayers that we prayed four years ago. As I look at this room, of these are people who are committed to saying, hey, I want to um, spend a weekend under, like, to learn about more about who God is and to worship him. And so... Thanks for being here today. Thanks for fueling my faith for what God's going to continue to do. Um, but as I was thinking back to that first year, um, yeah, I, I remember praying a lot of prayers of like, okay, God, this feels like a bold prayer. I'm going to ask you to do this. And then, shockingly, God would always exceed my expectations. And I started to see the theme of God saying, Kaylee, you don't think enough of me. Like, you expect too small of me. Um, you need to pray bigger prayers because actually what's reflected in your prayers is that you don't think that I'm that big of a God. And how true is that of us, that we have a really limited expectation of what God can do in us and in our lives. And as a result, we have a small expectation of what God can do for Salt Company and for um, Salt City Church and the Twin Cities. And so before we go into this time of teaching tonight, I actually want to give you guys a moment to, to stop and to pause and to ask God to, to show up tonight and to, um, to teach you and to convict you and change you. And so actually, if you could close your eyes with me um, for a quick moment. I've been thinking a lot about what it means to be in the presence of God, that the God who created the universe who created, he said, I'm going to put rings around Saturn because I think that'll look cool. And he created the intricacies of, of a leaf on an oak tree. And he created each one of us in this room, each one of us who we have a different appearance and a different personality. And, and all of us, we, we, we all reflect God's creativity and his design as we get to be image bearers. That God wants to know you and he wants to welcome you into his presence. And so as I think about, like, how do, I, how do I become aware of the presence of God every day, every moment of my life, not just in one moment of the day, but throughout my whole day, how would that change how I live? And so I, as I think about, like, what does it mean to be in the presence of God, I start really simple, and I just take a deep breath. So go ahead and take a deep breath. You can breathe in and breathe out. And that breath is a gift from God. And whatever to-do list that you have that's in your brain or whatever you're thinking about from today or the thing that you need to get done tomorrow, just, just try to push that away. And again, take another breath and thank God for that breath. I'm going to give you just a couple, like a minute or so, and I want you to spend time just thanking God. Thank God for who he is, who he has been to you. If you don't know God or don't consider yourself a Christian, um, if, you, if you're willing, you can ask God to reveal himself to you. So spend time thanking God in this moment. to transition to asking God for whatever's on your mind. Ask him to work in you this weekend. Ask him to work in your friends' lives, 
and in our assault company here. And pray expectantly. Pray a big prayer. Whatever that thing is that feels too big, whether that's a friend that you want to know Jesus or a relationship that needs healing or you want to pray for our city, whatever that is, go ahead and ask God. we welcome you into this place and we recognize that you're not a God that can con can be contained by four walls you're not a God that only exists in church on a Sunday morning or in a small group on a Wednesday night but you are in all and through all and above all and all of the earth gives glory to you King Jesus and yet how profound is it that you King Jesus you want to know me you want to know us God, would we never grow weary of that beautiful truth that, that you loved us so much that you gave your greatest treasure, your greatest gift, Jesus, so that we could know you, so that we could be, um, so that we could draw near to you with confidence. God, thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit that, um, that you said it was better for Jesus to leave his disciples so that they could have the Holy Spirit than for Jesus to be with them. And that same Holy Spirit is present in power today and tomorrow. And so, Jesus, we ask that we would be transformed by you, by your word, by your spirit. God, would we not pray small things, but would we pray with expectation that you will answer our prayers, that you are a good God who gives good gifts. Jesus, we love you, and we want to love you more. God, would that be our prayer our whole life? Would would we desire to know you, to gaze upon your beauty, um, to walk with you all the days of our lives? Amen. All right, so well, I get the joy of welcoming my good friend Mark to join us tonight. And I wish I could um, clearly communicate how much of a gift it is for him to be here this weekend. Um, yeah, Mark's a good friend of mine. Um, when I was a junior in college, he came to Ames with his family um, to help work at Salt Company. Um, and at that time, there was two, three Salt Companies total. Um, and God has done, like God has given Mark and I a sweet, good seat to see him work in our country, in our, um, in the Midwest, in the world. Um, so yeah, I was thinking about to junior year, and I was um, at their house a lot. I was um, in his wife's discipleship group, and I was um, serving their kids, but really, like by babysitting them, but really I was just there to be a sponge and ask a lot of questions from Mark and Crystal. <laughs> uh, I remember my first time meeting Mark and Crystal. I was living in the dorms because I was like, I want people to know Jesus, so I'm going to live in the dorms. And I was supposed to bring them a meal, and I didn't have a kitchen or a car, so I went to the dining hall with my disposal container and got a fruit salad to deliver to their house. But, yeah, Mark's been a, a sweet friend, but he's also he was my first boss um, working for Salt Company Ames, and actually, like, Mark was the first person to talk to me and to Jordan Adams about moving up to Minneapolis to help plant Salt City Church. And... So in an indirect way, each one of you in this room have been impacted by Mark, and that's pretty cool to, to get to see that. And um, not only has he been a good friend, but he's been like family to me, and he's been an incredible influence in my life. So um, Mark is a gifted teacher of the word, and he's super funny and engaging, but also... <laughs> oh, I, God has spoken and changed my life through Mark. Um, but also he's spoken into really critical moments in my life. And I can think of some very influential conversations that I've had. So I'm really grateful to get to share Mark with you guys and for us to get to learn from him. So Love you, Kayla. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> it really is true. Thanks. Yeah. All right. Let All me right. pray for you real quick. And yes, yeah. that'd be great. God, thanks so much for Mark. Thanks for the, the story that he's going to get to tell us tonight of Adonijah Judson. And I pray that, yeah, we'd be captivated and... Um, inspired by this story 
um, that we would desire to live a life that's worth living for, for you. Amen. Kaylee, it's a joy. I remember a lot of the moments with Kaylee, with Jordan, with actually a lot of the team. Abby came from uh, Ames as well. I actually believe I have a photo on my phone still also. I saw Kaylee's now husband, Dave, going over to ask her out while they were at Iowa State, and I knew what was happening, so I took a selfie knowing (laughs) that it was happening behind me of the moment when Dave was asking uh, Kaylee out, and so... Seeing this room is an answer to a lot of prayers uh, that I've prayed to, and so it's a joy to be with you. If you have a Bible, I want you to open to Romans chapter 10. Uh, I want to talk to you about the mission of God. I want to talk to you about um, God's plan to see his glory go to the ends of the earth so that everyone would hear that Jesus is Lord and King, and I want to ask you to be part of it. What we're going to do this weekend is actually take the time to kind of give you a snapshot of two life stories, two missionary biographies, one historical, one biblical, Adoniram Judson tonight, Jonah tomorrow, and I want to use their stories to invite you into God's story. Romans chapter 10 is where I want to start us, and so Romans 10 is verses 9 through 17 is what I'm going to read for you. Romans 10, verse 9 to 17 says this, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. One believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness. One confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame. Since there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, because the same Lord of all richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls the name of the Lord will be saved. But verse 14, how then would they call on him they have not believed in? And how can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how would they preach unless they're sent as it's written how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news? Not all have obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who's believed our message? So then faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes through the message of Christ. That's the biblical basis for global missions. Salvation comes by confessing Christ. Faith comes from hearing. So if people to believe in Jesus and receive the gift of eternal life, they have to hear about him. And you saw the storyline there in Romans 10. They don't hear Unless someone goes. That's the urgent need on your dorm floor, in your apartment building, in your family, among your friends at school. They need to hear the message of Jesus so they can respond. And it's the most urgent need of the world. And at present in the world, we'll talk more about this. Right now today, there are 29% of the world's population, nearly 2 billion people, who are unreached with the gospel. I don't just mean unsaved. Like they haven't trusted in Jesus. Unreached is a different term. Unreached means they live in a place with no sustainable gospel witness. Which means if you're one of those 29% of the world's population, nearly 2 billion people, in all likelihood you will live and you will die and you will never hear of Christ. And how can they believe on him then that they haven't heard of? So there's an urgent need for God's people to do something about that. For all of us to make part of the mission of our life, to join God in the mission that he's on, to see every beautiful person made in his image have a chance to hear the good news of his son, Jesus, who came for them. Not all of you are going to be called to go, but none of us can do nothing about such an urgent need. And I want to tell you the story tonight of Adoniram Judson. He's one of the first missionaries that was ever sent out of America to go across the ocean to another culture to bring the good news of the gospel. And I'm going to warn you of a few things as we go through this. First off, if you're a note taker, beware. I'm going to give you a ton of information. So if you really want all of it, I'll give like the written out kind of biographical sketch to Abby Gonzalez and those guys. They can put it out on the interwebs and you can use your Google machine in your pocket to look it up later. 
but otherwise, if you're going to take notes, what you should do is write it ma mainly by dates. Go by the years. Trust me. I'll give you the years that we're at as we go through this. The second warning that I'm going to give you is this. God does something absolutely glorious through Adoniram Judson, but you will rarely in your lifetime hear a story of someone who suffered so much. It is a horrible story of tragedy. But through his sacrifice, many will hear. So I promise there's good news at the end, but it's going to be hard to get there. All right? So journey with me at the story of Adoniram Judson and just know there will be years in his ministry where more people will die in his immediate family on the mission field than come to know Jesus. Multiple years. His life, especially his early life, is more full of death than of life. Outside in, if you were to look at his ministry for the majority of his time on earth, people would have called Adoniram Judson a complete failure. He never would have been invited to speak to Salt Company because he had done nothing noteworthy with his life other than suffer. And in America, we don't count people who suffer as a success. But at the end of his life, God used the suffering of this man to do something gloriously worth it to get the gospel to those who'd never heard. So let's talk about Adoniram Judson. Here's the first date, 1788. That's when he's born, August the 9th of 1788 in Malden, Middlesex County in Massachusetts. He was born the son of a congregational minister. His dad is Adoniram Judson Sr., his mother Abigail. He has two siblings, Abby and L. Nathan, which in English means the Nathan. That's a joke. That's not, that's not really true. Okay, you, some of you caught that. All right, here we go. He's an incredibly intelligent young child. In fact, the story is told of his life that while his father one time was away for a week preaching, at the age of three, Adoniram was taught by his mother to read and picked it up so fluently that when his father came home, he was reading books. I think that might be legendary, but it gives you a little bit of a sense of his genius, which will be showing up 1804. He's 16 years old. He enters the College of Rhode Island in Providence, now known as Brown University. At the age of 16, he was valedictorian of his university class at the age of 19. While studying at college, he meets a young man named Jacob Eames. He is a devout deist and a skeptic in all things about God. Judson and Eames form a deep friendship, which actually leads to Adoniram Judson denying his childhood faith and walking away from God, declaring himself an atheist. Okay? 1808, he's 20 years old. This is a crucial year in his life. How many of you guys here are 20? All right, good bit of you guys. This is your life. 20th birthday, August 9th, 1809. Adoniram Jensen goes to his parents on his birthday and tells them that he has renounced his Christian faith and will leave the family. He is leaving them to go to New York. He wants to be involved in the theater he was never a person to wait long once he'd made a decision, and so he asked his father to give him a share of his inheritance. He asked for a horse. His dad gives him a horse. Adoniram Judson mounts the horse and leaves his family that day. He goes to New York City with the aim of uh, working for a life in the theater, and here's what he finds, as many people even to this day will find showing up in New York City, is that you're quite talented in your hometown, and you're terrible when you get to New York City, and a no one wanted an unproven farm boy in the theater and so having nowhere else to go and running out of all of his money in the world, he begins the slow trek home like the prodigal son headed back to his father to say, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, but I'm starving to death. I need some help, Dad. I'm going to read now an excerpt from the missionary biography to the Golden Shore that tells you about his journey home. It's an incredibly significant night. As he's riding the horse, he has to stay at an inn in a small village. As night drew... He found himself passing through a small village, finding the local inn. He stabled the horse. He asked the innkeeper for a room. The house was nearly full, the landlord said apologetically, but he had one bed next to a young man, but unfortunately the young man in that room was critically ill, perhaps dying. He could, might be disturbed from some sounds of the doctor going in and out. Would he mind? Judson said no. He was wrapped up in his own thoughts. He would not let a few noises next door disturb him from a night's rest. So after getting something to eat, the innkeeper allowed Adam Judson to go to his room and left him. Without further ado, he got into bed and waited for sleep to come. He couldn't sleep. In the next room, beyond the partition, he could hear sounds throughout the night. Not very loud, footsteps coming and going, a board creaking, low voices, a groan or a gasp. 
They didn't disturb him too much, but what did disturb him was the thought that the man in the next room was dying and he was unprepared for death. When Judson woke, the next morning he dressed quickly, ran downstairs, looked for the innkeeper. As he was checking out, paying his reckoning, he saddled his horse. He was about to be on his way. He found the host, and as he paid the bill, noticing the man perhaps was very somber-faced, he casually asked what had become of the young man in the room next door to him. The innkeeper replied, he died. He's dead. Dead. Judson was taken aback with the heavy finality of the world. He stammered out a few conventional phrases common to humanity when death takes someone nearby and then asks the inevitable question, do you know who he was? Oh, yes, he was a young man from the college in Providence. His name was Eames, Jacob Eames. Remember Judson's best friend who convinced him to become an atheist? He died in the room next to Judson that night, Jacob Eames. He was so shaken, he sat in silence for two hours to ponder the news. Only one word echoed through his mind as he got on his horse and rode back to his family. It was this word, lost. Jacob is lost, and I am lost. And as he rode back to his home, by the time he returned home that day, he had turned his life over to Christ and dedicated himself to follow Jesus the rest of his life. How many days later, he would enroll in seminary and over seminary and begin to pray earnestly that God would do something in his life and that God would do something through his life. And so by the end of the next year, after deciding to follow Jesus, 1809, Adoniram Judson heard someone tell him a missionary biography story about a missionary named Robert Morrison, who was a great missionary to China. And he began to contemplate whether he should do something like that with his life. But you need to understand that's a radical thought. 1809 in America, the Congregationalists, that's the denomination in the church that Judson was a part of, they had never sent a foreign missionary from America to any other nation. In fact, at the time when Judson's contemplating this, there were only a handful of American missions missionaries who'd ever been sent. Guys like maybe William Carey had gone out, but no one else But he became resolved that he was going to be the first. He was going to be the first congregational missionary sent out, and he wanted to go to Burma. It'd be Myanmar today in South Asia. By 1810, the next year, he got a bunch of his buddies together, probably not unlike some of the group of friends you'd have here, and they together resolved that they would be the brethren. That's what they called each other. And they said, we are united in our spirit to see the gospel go to the unreached people of Southeast Asia. They began to try to convince people in their spheres of influence to support this. Judson was the spokesman for the group in 1810. This group of just wild-eyed college students convinced their congregational church to form the American Board for the Commission of Foreign Missions. Judson was preparing to be sent out as a missionary to Burma. He had to go to London to get further assistance. There's not a lot of money in America for missions at that point. So in 1811, he goes to uh, London to begin to try to raise some funds in January. The trip to London uh, took six months instead of two months because on the trip over, the boat he was on was actually... uh, I don't know what you call it. It was boarded by pirates, and they held them captive for like four months, okay? So he's like supposed to be there, but he managed eventually to get to London, get some um, assistance, and uh, before leaving for that trip, he proposed to his wife, his uh, soon-to-be wife, his girlfriend at that time. I don't know if they called them girlfriends in the 1800s. I don't know. His woman person. <laughs> Nancy Hazeltine. I, I want you, I'm going to read you what a missionary love letter sounds like, okay? This is the letter he wrote to her dad to ask if he would uh, allow Nancy to marry Adoniram Judson. Let me read this to you. Um, he says, I now have to ask whether you can, can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her never more in this world, whether you consent to her departure to a heathen land, her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. This is the literal letter he wrote her dad. I want to marry this girl 
Can you consent to all of this for for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you? For the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God, can you consent to this in the hope that if you part from your daughter in this life, you will meet her in the world of glory to come with a crown of righteousness and with thousands of heathens saved from eternal woe and despair? Whoa. Okay. If that's the letter he wrote to her dad, let me read you the love letter that he wrote to her from London. Nancy, may this be the year in which you change your name, in which you take a final leave of your relatives and native land, in which you cross the wide ocean and dwell on the other side of the world among a heathen people. What a great change this year will affect in our lives. How very different will be our situation and employment If our lives are preserved and our attempt prospered, we'll have next year's day in India and perhaps we'll wish each other a happy new year in the dialect of Burma. We will no more see our friends among us or enjoy the conveniences of civilized life or go to the house of God with those who keep holy day. We will probably experience seasons in which we'll be exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. We'll see many dreary, disconsolate hours. We'll feel sinking of spirits, anguish of mind, for which we can little form a concept now. We may wish to lie down and die. Okay, again, this is a love letter. This is like how he wrote her. We may wish to die down and die. One of us may be unable to sustain the heat of the climate, the change of habits. The other may say with literal truth over the grave, by foreign hands thy dying eyes were closed. But whether we shall be honored or mourned, God only knows, at least either one of us will be certain that one of them is the mourner. In the view of such scenes, God help us pray over and over, coming faith, love, adoniram. Which tells you that missionaries can be weird people. Because that, that is brutal. That is brutal. Just tell her she's pretty and you'll give her flowers. Octo- okay, 1812. marriage and a journey to India. Okay, so 1812, now we're headed across the ocean. February the 5th, he is married to Nancy Ann Hazeltine, who becomes Nancy Judson. He is ordained the next day at his church, and then February 19th, count that, 14 days later, I mean, honeymoon, 14 days later, get on the boat, we're going to India. They leave to sail for India. He's 24 years old. Now with them, there are some of his friends, Luther Rice, Samuel and Harriet Newell, and Adoniram and his wife, Nancy. All right, they head to Calcutta. That journey takes 114 days at sea. All right, so if you ever complain about like a more than 10-hour flight in international travel, just keep in mind, 114 days at sea. They arrive in Calcutta, and they are greeted by one of the first missionaries to be sent out from America, William Carey. Okay, so just imagine, this is like one of their lifelong heroes. And they say, hey, William Carey, you're a super famous missionary. We're going to Burma. Here's what William Carey tells them. You should not do that. It won't work. Two missions to Burma have failed. The Burmese government is dictatorial and dangerously unpredictable. They are hostile to Westerners and missionaries. Evangelism and missions will be impossible. They will likely kill you. That's what they're told by the dude who started global missions, William Carey. Little discouraging. They're met with resistance from the British authorities themselves. They say they don't want anyone evangelizing Burma. And so they're ordered out of India and told not to go to Burma, but instead to return back to America. At this point, also keep in mind, Harriet Newell, who's one of the missionaries who went with them, is now very pregnant. She's due to deliver her baby in less than two months. They need to go somewhere to deliver the baby, so they go to Madagascar, which is not just a comedic, funny show for children. It's an actual place near Africa. I don't know if you knew that. I do, because I have a birthmark on my right leg that is shaped like Madagascar. I'm going to show it to you right now. You see, you can see that, right? It is shaped like the East African island of Madagascar, which is where the Judsons landed. (laughs) It's not in my notes. Um, They land there. Now, the Newells, who went with them, their friends, they had to go first because she's very pregnant. 
The Judsons will soon follow, and then they will land. On January the 17th, 1813, they land in the Isle of France on Madagascar. They look forward to a happy renewal with their friends, the Newells, but there is no happy reunion. The Newells' boat to the Isle of France was delayed. Harriet gave birth to a baby girl aboard the ship with no one to assist her in the birth but her husband. Within five days of the baby's birth, the baby girl caught pneumonia and died in her mother's arms. Harriet Newell, when they landed by that time, was also desperately ill with pneumonia. She deteriorated, and within weeks of landing on the Isle of France at Madagascar, Harriet Newell, at the age of 19, died as well. So, they're a year into the start of their missionary journey. They are still unable to go into Burma. It's illegal. They are mourning the death of their friend Harriet and of her daughter. They are hounded by authorities, and they, what do you do? Do you give up at that point? They press forward, and so they convince a, a vessel called the Georgia to let them board. It's headed to Burma. Now, at this point, Adniram's wife, Nancy, is also now pregnant, okay? She's very pregnant. But they have no choice. They have to leave Madagascar. If they're going to go, they, unless they're going to get sent back to America, they have to go to Burma now. And so they make the decision. They both have to go at once. They were only a few days at sea when Nancy goes into labor. Like her friend Harriet before, there is no one to aid her in the birth of the child but her husband, Adniram. The baby was born and then died. They landed in Burma on July the 13th of 1813. And buried their child. So we got three people who've died in the first year. They begin to study. The Burmese grammar is very hard. It takes them over three years to simply learn how to speak to the people around them. Because first, before they can get the gospel to the people, they have to know how to talk to them. They have to come up with some way. And so they study. Roughly from 1813, July 13th, they land, 1813. It takes them 1814 to 1816 to learn. They spend almost all their time trying to learn the language. They have no contact with any other European or Americans. And this time, September the 11th of 1815, Roger Judson is born. He's a great baby. He was a source of great joy to his parents. Adnarum's journals are full, full of loving notes about his son. But in May of 1817, the next year, Roger developed a terrible fever, and he died at six months old. This death broke their hearts. But the locals watched how they suffered and began to reach out in friendship to this unusual man, Adoniram, and his wife. In the midst of this, Adoniram Judson has learned enough of Burmese to publish the first work of the gospel ever in the Burmese language, a simple gospel tract explaining to people about the story of Jesus. As he shares faith, shares his faith through this tract, people start to ask questions about Jesus. In 1819, he knew the language well enough to start to publicly preach about Christ. And he built something called a Zayat. It's basically like a, it'd be like a public gathering place made out of bamboo. And he invited people to come in and hear the message of Jesus in this Zayat. Fifteen people came to the first public meeting that he held. He was encouraged but suspected they were mainly just curious. Many of them left and then didn't come. But two months later, one man who had continued to come, Maung Nao, a 35-year-old timber worker, put his faith in Jesus. He would be the first Burmese person to receive the message of Christ. I just want you to count this. That is 1819, the first person to trust Jesus six years after Judson had first come. You guys are four years in. Six years, zero converts to Christianity. None. Six years. In the next years, from 1819 to 1823, 
He continued to work to evangelize from that Zion that would become a church. He worked diligently to complete a translation of the New Testament, which he completed after four years, the first translation of the New Testament into Burmese. And the little church had grown to 18 people over that next four years. They had 18 people who'd come to faith in Christ. They hit the year 1824, and things are going well. He's preparing the New Testament to go to print, but in 1824, there is a war that breaks out. It's called the Anglo-Burmese War. Burma desired more territory. Britain desired more trade. And English-speaking Americans were often easily confused with the enemy British spies. And so on June the 8th of 1824, Adoniram Judson was arrested in his home and accused of being a British spy. Officers led an official executioner into his home. They threw him on the ground in front of his wife. They bound him with torture tongs. They dragged him over a pole to the death prison of Ava. His feet were fettered. At night, a long a long horizontal bamboo pole was lowered and his feet would be passed through the pole and then hoisted up into the air so that his head and shoulders would rest on the ground while his feet hung suspended all night long as lice and animals ate at his head and shoulders. A couple weeks into his imprisonment, the Judsons received the news that Anne was pregnant again. She's pregnant, but they don't serve people meals at the death prison of Ava. The only way you get food if you're a prisoner is if someone from the outside brings it to you. So Anne, while pregnant, began the two-mile daily walk to the prison to plead with the guards that Judson was not a spy and that they should have mercy. She bribed officials who were there that got him some relief so that he wouldn't be hoisted up in the pole at night. The prisoners had vermin in their hair. Their food was rotting. Their heads were shaved. She continued to work for them to bring him food, to get him released, to convince the government that he was not a spy. After almost a year, they were moved to a further out prison. There were mosquitoes. They nearly all had malaria. Anne had to continue to make the daily walk to provide Judson with food. And in that time, their daughter, Maria, is born. And Anne is carrying Maria with her to Adoniram, taking him food daily. But Anne now has gotten nearly as sick and as thin as Adoniram. She would walk to take the food to him. But eventually, as she would walk, she'd be so ill and weak, she could not walk more. She would bring the baby to Adoniram. And the, ju- the prison guards had such pity on them that they would allow Adoniram Judson to take his child and walk out of the prison while his wife lay in there, so sick that she could no longer feed her baby milk. And Adoniram Judson would go to the local villages and beg women to nurse his daughter. Come back to the prison. Hand the daughter back to his wife. His wife would stumble back home. On November the 4th of 1825, over a year after he was first arrested, he was suddenly released. The government needed a translator to negotiate for Britain, and they chose Judson to translate for them. He had been in prison 17 months. As he was released, he was on the brink of death. His wife worked to nurse him back to health, but her health had broken as well. And 11 months after his release, his wife Anne died October the 24th of 1826. Six months later, their daughter Maria died also. April 24th of 1827. The suffering of all of it nearly drove Judson mad. He moved away from civilization into the jungles. He read mystics such as Madame Guyon and led a solitary existence. He dropped his translation work. He wrote in his journals, God to me is the great unknown. I believe in him, but I cannot find him. He remained isolated from all contact and depressed for two years. 1829. Ironically, what breaks Judson out of his depression is another death, this time the death of his brother. Elnathan died in 1829. Judson received word from America, though, that his brother, who when he had left America, had rejected the faith, had in his last days come back to Christ. 
and given his life to Jesus. And it was the first steps, kind of hearing this new life in his brother that starts to break Adoniram Judson out of his terrible depression. But in the meantime, in all of this, God had started to do something absolutely incredible that Adoniram Judson had no idea was happening in his suffering. In 1828, okay, so Judson at this point, is his wife has died, his daughter has died. He's basically in the jungles, depressed and hiding from civilization. In 1828, two missionaries, Sarah and George Borman, British missionaries to Burma, had started a mission work to the tribal people called the Karen. When they went to those people, they brought with them the New Testament and the gospel tracts that Judson had translated. And as they went, they were there on the mission field because they had heard the story of Adoniram Judson, of his suffering, and they wanted to join in the work. As they found the Karen people, here's what they found in this tribal people, that they were completely prepared for the message of the gospel. In fact, the Karen had an ancient oral tradition that told them there was an unchanging, eternal, powerful God, the creator of heaven and earth, of man and of woman, born from his rib. They believed that humanity had been tempted by the devil, fallen into sin, but that one day a Messiah would come. And they lived in expectation that people from another land would one day bring them a sacred book that would tell them of God and of the truth. That book was the completed translation of the Bible that Judson had labored his whole life to give. And in 1828, without Judson even knowing it was happening, Sarah and George Berman, Boardman walked into a tribal village, brought a book with them, and the people said, God has sent you for us. Eventually, George Boardman would die of a fever reaching those Karen, but in April 1834, after having joined them on the mission, Adoniram Judson would marry his widow, Sarah Hall Boardman. They would eventually have eight children together in the mission field, five of whom would survive to adulthood. They would labor happily and healthily for 11 years, ministering to the Karen, these people prepared to hear the good news of Jesus. By 1845, Sarah's health had deteriorated. She left on September of 1845 to go back to America for treatment. She died en route to America. Judson was with her. Adoniram continued home where he was greeted as a celebrity and toured the eastern seaboard proclaiming, talking about missions. Unfortunately, as he toured and preached about missions, he was unable to speak above a whisper. His suffering from just various sicknesses in the mission field had robbed his ability to speak above a whisper, so he would whisper in the ears of a translator who would speak the message to the crowds. While in America, he would marry for a third time, Emily Chubbuck, they had a daughter together in 1847 and returned back to Burma. They had three years of joyful gospel ministry together, but in 1845, Adoniram Judson had developed a serious lung condition. It had been chronic and growing for some time. The doctors prescribed a voyage at the sea as a cure. That would be no avail. He was in misery on the voyage of the sea. He would be roused from time to time in terrible pain, vomiting blood, on the ship, the sailors with him, when he passed away on April the 12th of 1850, remark how few there are who die so hard and in so much pain. And on April the 12th, 1850, aboard a ship in the Bay of Bengal, Adoniram Judson died and was buried at sea. He had spent 37 years of his life in missionary service, only one trip back to America. Ten days later, his wife, Emily, would give birth to their second child, who would also die at birth. She would learn four months later after the sea voyage returned that her husband had died at sea. She would return to New England next January, and she would die three years later of tuberculosis she had contracted on the mission field. Now let me tell you the legacy of Adoniram Judson. That's his life story. When Adoniram Judson began his mission in Burma, he had a goal to translate the Bible and to one day form a church with a hundred followers of Jesus that would be there at his death. When Adoniram Judson died, he left behind the full Bible and a dictionary in Burmese. Not a hundred members of a church, but a hundred churches that had been planted. 8,000 believers 
and a flock of missionaries who had followed the example of his legacy and his suffering. In part due to his influence, Myanmar and Burma, at one point in the near past, had one of the largest number of congregations, particularly of Baptist churches per capita worldwide today, 3,700 congregations with 620,000 members between Burma, the United States, and India. I want to give you a couple lessons from his life. This is where if you take notes, you write these down. Number one, you need to understand what it means when I say there are unreached people still in the world. What does it mean to say there are unreached people? It means there are two billion people who, like the Burmese people that Judson went to, have no access to the gospel. I'm using the term unreached, not unsaved. Your roommate at college might be unsaved, but they have access to the good news of Jesus because you are their roommate, and this ministry is here. When I say unreached, what I mean is there are two billion people who, like the people of Burma before Adoniram Judson went to them, have no access to the gospel. There is no sustainable church in their country or in their language. People who are unreached, they don't know any Christians. They've never heard the message of Jesus. They wouldn't know where to go to hear it, which means here's the likelihood for those two billion people. Two billion people is that they will live every day of their life and they will die and they will never hear of Jesus. They don't know there's a God who loves them. Being unreached is different from being unsaved. Unsaved means I haven't responded to a message that I have heard. Unreached means I'll never hear the message. And today, there are still two billion beautiful people made in God's image who've never heard of Christ. And they never will unless someone goes to them because they have no way to get the message where they are. Second, God has a plan to reach those people. Jesus said, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, so go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, of the Burmese, of all the nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach them everything I've commanded you, and I will be with you to the end of the age. That was what Jesus said he had the authority to commission his followers to do. And here's the thing, that mission of Jesus to reach the ends of the earth will be accomplished. Revelation chapter 7 says, when, when John writes of this vision he sees of heaven, Revelation 7 says they sang a new song, they sang, worthy are you to take the scroll and open the seals. You were slain by your blood. You have ransomed people from God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Did you catch that? They're praising God in heaven because he has ransomed people from every single tribe and nation and language. Every single group of people on the face of the earth, Jesus has people he has for himself there. Someone, though, will have to go to them. Remember Romans 10. How will those people who are Jesus's receive him if they can't hear? Someone will have to go. God will reach people from every nation. Third Third point, but the gospel will only penetrate the unreached places if God's people will suffer to take it there. Unreached places are unreached for reasons. That is because it is hard to go, if not impossible. Those countries are closed to the gospel. It will be dangerous and costly to go the suffer. But unless some of us are willing to suffer like Adoniram Judson, to see the glory of God go to the ends of the earth, people won't hear. John 12, 
24 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Philippians 1, 29. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for him. Perhaps. Perhaps God would have you to go to one of those places. And you may not suffer to the extent of Adoniram Judson, but I need to be honest with you to say there's no easy path to take the gospel to hard places. My sister took the gospel to one of those places. Her name's Megan. She's a lot like you guys. She's a 4.0 triple major nursing student. Brilliant. One of the smartest people I know who turned down the lucrative medical jobs that she could have had to pursue a career in nursing to go and spend the first seven to eight years of her career overseas in an unreached people group, the Bengali-speaking people group who live in Bangladesh. She lived there and owned almost nothing. She was constantly ridiculed and many times in danger as a white, blonde-haired, blue-eyed girl in a strict Muslim country. She left behind many of the nice things she could have had. Many of her college roommates went on to far more lucrative careers in medicine with nicer homes and nicer cars and good internet. And my sister repeatedly got typhoid. I'll never forget picking her up at the Des Moines airport and wheeling her through the airport in a wheelchair because she had lost 30 pounds from typhoid and was near death because she continued to work 50 hours a week with typhoid because she served people who if she stopped sharing Jesus, no one was there to share. She's back in the States now, happily married, serving Jesus here. Part of the reason she's not back there is because it became evident after her third bout with typhoid that if she were to get it again, she would likely die. Did she waste her life? Like, that's a question you have to ask yourself. Do we waste our lives to leave behind a big dream that everyone in America will applaud? Or maybe, just maybe, we waste our lives living for a dream that everyone else would applaud, but that is so insignificant in the glory of God. What if the best way to invest the best of our lives is to go to some of the hardest places? William Carey, the father of modern missions, said, if you want to know the will of God, you need an open Bible and an open map. My sister received the good news of Jesus, and she took a map of the world, and she said, Jesus, I have one life, and I just want to reach some people who'd never hear unless I went. And if we have a hope to make a dent among the two billion people in the world who have yet to hear the good news of Jesus... Some of us have to go. So fourth, every single one of you are supposed to be involved in this some way. Not all of you are called to go. In fact, my guess is looking at a room like this, few are. But we live in a world right now that cries out that we need to work to end injustice. And friends, the greatest injustice that could happen in the world, the greatest human suffering that we could in, work to end in the world is the human suffering of a life and eternity spent away from God in hell. And right now there are two billion people enduring the greatest injustice and poverty they will ever face in this world. It's not a poverty of material things or wealth. It's a lack of access to the one message that can save them. All of us have to do something. At the very least, here's what I want to ask everybody in the world, in this room to do. I want you to pray in a different way for the world. There's a website you can type it in called Operation World or the Joshua Project. 
that will give you a look at some of these people groups around the world, the two billion people who've never heard of Jesus. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to pray for some people who've never heard that they'd hear. Maybe God would answer those prayers. Here's the second thing I want you to do. This is going to sound crazy to college students. I want you to give money. You're like, I don't have money. I'm like, look, if you know a missionary, all of us can do something to help them go to. Send them. Bless them. Here's a third thing I want you to do. At some point in your four years here, I understand with COVID, all this sort of thing may be hard right now, but at some point in your life, you have to go someplace that is foreign to you so you can have a heart to see what God sees and love what God loves. Don't take the time in your college years to simply build an internship and waste the opportunity to see God's heart among the nation. Get an internship. But at some point, guys, I'm 38 years old. I know. It's shocking. I work out. It's very obvious. I understand. But I want to challenge you guys. It's pretty hard for me to take a summer of my life to leave my children at home and go over and do foreign missions, get a sense for God's heart. But for you, it would be worth any sacrifice that you would make to get a taste of seeing what God loves in the nations. Notice, I'm not trying to just simply guilt you into this. Here's what I'm saying. The God of the universe says he has people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And he wants you to be part of his mission. Do you believe that? You didn't get chosen for dodgeball in elementary. And the God of the universe is saying, I have the best mission in all the world. I want to pull people from every tribe and nation into my family. And he wants you to be on his team. I'm not saying go and do foreign missions simply because there's everybody out there. And if nobody, I'm not just simply guilting you. I'm trying to say this to you. Could there be a better, more glorious use of a summer of, of, or of your life than to be part of the mission of God? Is there anything that you could think of that would be more worth it than that? Many people are afraid of many things. We're afraid of death. We're afraid of suffering like Adoniram Judson. We might be afraid of disappointing people, afraid that when we get done with college, we won't get the job that we like, afraid that we won't marry some sort of beautiful man. I don't know if girls, you call them beautiful. No. Handsome. I don't know. Just a lovely individual. <laughs> afraid that our life won't turn out to be something. Here's the greatest fear I have for you. The greatest fear that I have for you is you would spend your life doing things that are absolutely great for 70 years on earth and spend absolutely no time planning for eternity. My greatest fear for my kids is that they would somehow believe the lie of the American dream. That actually what's most worth it is to live a nice life, to marry a hot wife, get a good car and a great job and die fat, sassy and no hell. That is my terror for my children. That they would believe the lie that being full of everything that makes them happy and fulfilled is the best life. What if the best life is just to get on board with what God is doing and obey him? No matter what. If he calls you in Jesus to live in the suburbs and have a great wife, praise God. Just give a ton of money to missions and love the heck out of people for Jesus. But listen to me. The greatest fear I have in the world for you is that you would settle for a second-rate dream when you could join the God of the universe on his mission. That's my great fear for you. Live for something worth dying for, guys. And the nations and the glory of Jesus is worth it. We pray that God would help us to live that way. So God, we're here. And I know this is a heavy message. I know this is a heavy story. Adoniram Judson, his life is, there's such suffering. And God, I, I, I pray that wouldn't be the path of anybody in this, this church, in this salt company. We, we're not asking for suffer, suffering. But here's what we know. 
The unreached places are hard places for reasons, and if we're going to go, we have to be so full of glory, so full of the love of God, so full of the hope of eternity that we would be willing to look at the small dreams we have and say, I need a bigger dream. So God, here's what I'm praying for salt tonight, what I'm praying for salt in this weekend. I'm praying that they would see tonight the beauty and glory of Jesus that would be so beautiful and so glorious and so good that it would be worth anything they could sacrifice to be part of his mission. God, use the suffering of Adoniram Judson to teach us something about what is really most important in light of eternity. We ask it for the name of Jesus. We pray it in his beautiful name. Amen.